seems like a long time. Did our prayer group pray for the recent thing? Oh, good. Then, then God will answer. Today is three things, if you, in case some of you guys should know this, it is Valentine's Day. Um, you're aware of that? It's good. And secondly, it's our, what else is it? Oh, it's Ash Wednesday. I forgot to mention that. And uh, I don't see any. And it's our anniversary here. This is our eighth anniversary, the eighth anniversary of being here in the Alamo. Isn't that awesome? That's tremendous. Let's take a couple of moments for silent preparation. Colleen, you didn't have, Arnie didn't drive you here tonight, did he? Thank God. There's a reason I asked that. Let's let's have a word of prayer. <laughs> Father, we do join with the prayers that we've that have already been issued in this place from our effective prayer group for the unspeakable tragedy that has occurred in the school in Broward County in Florida. And we're often at a loss as to how to pray. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit will make intercession through us from that place in which prayers are inarticulable by us. And we pray that your son, the reality that is your son, will be experienced by many, especially those who are mourning the loss of their children in unimaginable mourning and grief. We pray that only you can bring the comfort, and so we pray that you will through your Son, Jesus Christ, that the gospel will become very apparent in many lives and that it will be brought to bear on this place of disaster. And we pray for all of the occurrences that are going on in our nation, in our families. And we pray again that the reality that is your son will become apparent in all of these adversities. We ask now that you'll draw us and we will run after you through the word that we receive tonight in Romans, the epistle, that we may begin to have that vision without which the people of God perish And we thank you for this privilege. We pray that you'll open our eyes now, behold wonderful things in your word, that you'll open our ears to hear our shepherd, and that you will open our hearts to receive the ineffable word about your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to Romans chapter 16, we're following what I call a pincer strategy, as you know, and I want to keep repeating this because I hope this keeps working until we get to the dead center of Romans. A pincer movement 
is a military movement which attacks a center from two flanks. And so it's sort of a pinching movement, but pincer is the word. The Romans were famously defeated at a place called Cannae or Cannae, no matter how you, depending on how you pronounce it, in 216 BC. And the enemy destroyed the Roman legions by a pincer movement. The pincer movement that is in Romans is also going to destroy the idolatry of Rome, the idolatry of the biggest city of braggarts on the face of the earth, as we've seen. Paul's message is largely distilled from Jeremiah. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the wealthy man boast in his wealth. Let not the person of strength boast in their strength. Those are the three things that Roman that the Roman Empire did and specialized in, boasting in their wealth, boasting in their wisdom, boasting in their strength. And so there is an element in Romans in which an empire topples. Paul is introducing and announcing the universal dominion of a king, and it's not Caesar. He is announcing the universal dominion of the crucified Christ, the risen Christ. And he's announcing that all people will eventually become obedient to the faith of this gospel. Romans 1 then, following our pincer movement, we have at the very beginning of Romans on the far left flank a greeting from Paul to all those who are in Rome, loved, and as such loved means elected, as we'll see throughout Romans, loved by God, called saints. I think this is the best description for what we call Christians. There's Christians, there's believers, and then there's saints. And as I mentioned, I like the word saints as a description of us better than any other term because saint emphasizes the action of God upon us. And that's grace, God's unconditional grace. Saint means that we have been sanctified, and we didn't do that ourselves. God did it. If you say believer, it's something we're doing by the grace of God. If you say Christian, it's some, someone we're manifesting, but not every Christian does. So saint emphasizes the action of God performed upon us. And that's really what grace is, God's act, action performed upon us. Now, we've gotten all the way through Romans sixteen twenty one, and all the greetings to certain saints in Rome and from certain missionary partners of Paul. And he's writing from a house in Corinth of a man named Gaius. And he, Gaius not only hosts Paul and his missionary team, but he hosts the entire church when they have their church meetings in Corinth. So he must have been a man of some means. So let's go to the other extreme right flank in Romans 16:22 and see an unusual verse I Tertius or Tertius we would say T E R T I U S a name that means the third I Tertius the amanuensis now an amanuensis is a fancy term for someone who receives dictation he could be a male secretary i guess you could call it he is the amanuensis 
of Romans. That means Paul dictated this. Tertius received the dictation, and so he actually wrote Romans. He penned it, Tertius did. He's the amanuensis. And so he actually interrupts the greetings here and makes a greeting of his own. I, Tertius, the amanuensis, the writer, literally, of this letter, salute you in the Lord. That got me thinking that what he must have gotten by writing What a privilege it was to write what Paul dictated to him under the inspiration of the Spirit. And then I thought it might even be profitable to take a pretty good translation of Romans like the Holman Christian Standard Bible or the New American Standard and write Romans as an exercise. Sometimes memory is best served by writing. You could do like Tertius and write. Tertius, whose name means the third, and I hope you'll hold that thought because it's important, is the amanuensis of Paul. He received this epistle by dictation from Paul himself. So he actually wrote Romans the epistle. Now think of that privilege. It's quite astounding. I'm sure he didn't imagine 2,000 years down the road that we would be studying this epistle that he received by dictation. And we've noted last week that in Philippians 4.3, we have a rare occasion of Paul in his letters where he seems to be addressing the co-author of that epistle, co-author being Timothy. Paul said, I have no other person like Timothy, Paul and Timothy to the church at Philippi. And in 4.3, he says, my true yoke fellow, my true partner, Please see to it that you odious and syntyche see eye to eye there when you go. So it's a rare occasion of Paul addressing the co-author of the Philippian epistle. Here in Romans 16.22, we have another rare occasion of the amanuensis or the secretary of Paul, the one who actually took the dictation of this epistle, writing his own salute to the Roman saints. So it was normal for Paul to dictate his epistles and then to actually sign them with his own hand. And that was kind of an indication that it was a genuine Pauline epistle. He would sign them with his own hand. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty-one. You can read about it in Colossians four eighteen, Second Thessalonians three seventeen. It was normal for Paul to dictate his epistles and then sign those epistles with his own hand. In Galatians, he goes a little further, though. He kind of grabs the pen, if we can imagine it, grabs the pen of the amanuensis and writes Galatians six eleven through 18 with his own handwriting, the whole thing. He's, it's a supreme emphasis. We'd call it today all in caps. He grabs the pen, and in fact, it's excellent to read that once in a while, Galatians 6, 11 to 18, because Paul is, I, I, am, I picture him pacing while he's dictating that, and maybe punching a wall here and there, but he's emphatic. So in Galatians, he goes even further than signing, and he grabs the pen of the amanuensis and writes Galatians 6, 11 to 18, all in caps, as it were. Now that Tertius was allowed to interpolate or interrupt with his own greeting, 
shows that Paul highly valued all of his missional co-workers. Tertius was one. And his ministry was invaluable, his gift invaluable, as all of yours are. Paul highly valued all of his missional co-workers. The gracious greetings in Romans 16, 21 to 23 come from Corinth to Rome. Saints in Corinth to saints in Rome. From those who were with Paul, who wrote this epistle from the home of Gaius, that's G-A-I-U-S, another name. All of these names have some significance, incidentally. In the home of a man named Gaius. Paul, he's the same Gaius, I think, whom Paul baptized along with his entire household in 1 Corinthians 1.14. And he baptized a couple other families, and then he said he's glad he didn't baptize a lot more people. Because they'd be saying in Corinth, well, Paul baptized me. As if you're baptized in the name of Paul. And then he said, he concluded, of course, famously in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's by means of the gospel that God does the baptizing of people into union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, as 1 Corinthians 12.13 says. And so there is a high probability that Paul dictated this epistle to Tertius in the home of Gaius. Douglas Campbell offers that the date is somewhere in the spring of A.D. 52. Others give reasonable estimates stretching to A.D. 57, such as one man I'm reading who's got an excellent commentary named Robert Jewett. Somewhere between 52 and 57 is a reasonable estimate. And so as we stand back from afar and attempt to view the ancient historical horizon before us in Romans the epistle, it's actually stunning to consider the names in Romans 16. Gaius was the name, ultimately, of Julius Caesar. His name was Gaius Julius Caesar. And he was the first and the foremost and arguably the most famous of the Caesars, which are the Roman czars. We get that word czars from Caesars. And yet here in this letter, Gaius is the name of a Christian man who is hosting Paul the Apostle as he writes a letter to people in the heart of the Roman Empire. An empire which arose most notably in Gaius, Julius Caesar. So Romans 16, 23, speaking of Gaius, he says, Gaius, in whose home I am a guest friend. Hospitality meant a lot in the Middle East and the Near East. And as we know from the book, The Lone Survivor and the movie that followed, when a guest is taken into the home, then those who are Hosting the guests do so and even lay down their lives if they have to for that guest friend. They're literally called guest friends. Gaius, in whose home I am a guest friend. Jason took him in, as we remember from Acts chapter 17. Jason also took Paul and Silas into his home and he paid a cost for it because unbelieving Jews rounded up some thugs from the market square there and attacked the house of Jason. 
So the hospitality means something, and it should now. Gaius, in whose home I am a guest friend and who hosts the whole church. This is another argument for or another indication that churches met in the homes of wealthy patrons like Aquila and Priscilla in Rome and like Gaius in Corinth. He salutes you. Erastus, the city manager, and our brother Quartus salute you. Erastus, the city manager. Now, Paul's gospel obviously reached a lot of slaves in Rome, but it also reached city managers. It reached mayors. It reached kings. It reached the noble as well as the lowborn. Erastus, whose name means beloved, was the city treasurer of Corinth. And this shows that though not many noble are called in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, some noble are called. Quartus means the fourth. This kind of struck me a little funny. Tertius means the third. Quartus means the fourth. Quartus. And there may be a little bit of humor going on here. You know, I think they might have had a sense of humor back then, as we do now. I feel sorry for people who don't have one. I haven't got, I don't know how you get through life without a sense of humor. But there may be a little humor on the part of Paul here since Tertius was the third. Paul mixes, therefore, people of means and wealth as well as people who are slaves and freemen among the saints in Rome and the saints in Corinth. There are females and males, females, ladies in prominent positions in both Corinth and Rome, and ladies in positions of prominence in the church at Philippi. There are females and males, there are Jews and Greeks, there are slaves and free. And so it's a primary principle in Paul's epistles that in Christ, none of these, male versus female, Jew versus Greek, None of these things, slave versus free, rich versus poor, none of them survive as antagonisms in Christ. There is no antinomies. There's no hostilities left. There are no recognized hostilities any longer. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Colossians three eleven, Talk about the new humanity in which there are no Jew versus Greek, male versus female, freeman versus slave, rich versus poor. So Tertius and Quartus, the third and the fourth, evokes in me the thought that not only all receive the rectifying, saving life of Christ, according to Paul's epistle, all receive the rectifying life of Christ. Not only, but not only do all receive the rectifying life of Jesus Christ, Romans 5.18, but also that each person receives it one by one. The first, the second, Tertius and Quartus, the third and the fourth. Paul even said in Romans 16, if you remember, they were in Christ. He mentions a couple. They were in Christ before me. And that indicates that not only is God's mercy shown to all, not only are all given life in Christ, 
But each is given life in Christ at a particular moment in their historical existential history. God the Holy Spirit interrupts everybody in their life under sin. He interrupts and shatters the world of every person when that world is dominated by sin and death and even by the law that had been hijacked by sin. Romans 7 is all about the Torah being hijacked by sin. Sin is exceedingly evil because it took the highest good and twisted it for its own perverted purpose. And Paul does a speech in character in Romans 7 that we'll get to. It's part of the center toward which we're pressing. So as I said Sunday, I'll say again, this is a primary principle. Salvation is equally radically universalistic and individualistic. Radically universalistic, Romans 5.18, and radically universal individualistic that is each and every person is confronted by the gospel and is awakened to faith either consciously or subconsciously faith is not a condition to be reconciled to God because the reconciliation of all to God is already a fact faith is the way that we correspond to that condition in life. And so the second part of our passage here is going to be our study tonight is what I call bracketed grace and the grace that brackets Romans. Now we have brackets in Romans and grace brackets Romans as it brackets all of Paul's epistles. In other words, it's at the end and it's at the beginning and it is the extreme far right flank, the extreme far left flank, and it presses toward the center in which we find that God is for us in Romans 8.31. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God is for us, then why does one group despise another and another group judge another? All of the biases of groups is rooted in a deep psychological insecurity. Romans eradicates that insecurity by showing each person and every person assurance of the love of God in Christ Jesus, which in turn undermines the hostility and the ressentiment of groups. And that's what Paul's doing here in Romans. There's actually a sociological, political part of Romans too, in which it can have a great impact on a nation, on a generation also. The cure for the national ills of the United States of America is not found even in the Constitution. It's found in Romans, the epistle. So bracketed grace. Look at Romans 16, 24. Now, I've told you a little bit about the war I'm fighting in my study because there's a lot of controversy about this very verse. You'd think there wouldn't be, but Romans 16, 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, back to Romans 1.7. To all those who are in Rome, loved by God, called saints. All 
is one of Paul's favorite words in Romans. He uses it 75 times. You'd think people would get their their antenna up and at least detect what he's talking about here. He uses the universal gospel to promote peace and unity and to destroy group biases in Rome. So now, the reason I say this is controversial is because this verse is omitted. If you have translation with you, English translations, you might even see this in your own translations. The verse is omitted because the Nesli Allen text, the 27th edition of it, which I usually use, omits it. It's also omitted or bracketed or italicized in many English translations. You might find yours being italicizing it or even bracketing it. And I'm using a play on the words bracketed. So the jury is still out, although, in my view, the jury is still out regarding verdicts on Romans 16, 24, and 25 through 27. I've read some hefty commentaries and the reasoning that people have. There are reasons why people, scholars, think Paul didn't write Ephesians and Colossians. I can give as many reasons why he did. Others will say Romans 16, 25 to 27 doesn't belong there, that it was or that it was written by a student of Paul or someone who really appropriated Paul's doctrine, as were some of the pastoral epistles. But we have to be very slow to jump to these conclusions. In my view, in this case, this is one of those occasions where I choose to go with the majority text, at least in principle. That means I'm not insisting that this salutation was part of the original manuscript penned by Tertius or that Paul himself penned it. But I do assert that it belongs right here. It belongs right here. It's at the conclusion of a series of greetings from Paul's team in Corinth to the tenement and house churches. And there's battles going on. There's the tenement churches hosted by imperial slaves. Many of those who attend these tenement churches are either poor freedmen or slaves themselves under the employ of the Roman bureaucracy. Then there's the house churches hosted by certain people like Aquila and Priscilla and perhaps other people of means. And there's a lot of battling going on between them. And so I don't insist that we have to put that verse there, but I do assert that it belongs right here. And so I'm going to consider it as part of the Roman text. And it's at this conclusion, it's, it is written at the conclusion of a series of greetings from Paul's team in Corinth to the tenement and the house churches in Rome. So it brackets Romans with grace. You say, well, what if it really doesn't belong there? Then, well, look at Romans sixteen twenty. He's got another, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Only here he tacks on the word all. It's another reason why I think he makes an advance on it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. All he emphasizes here in a very important way because he's corralling the whole of them and saying that they're equal beneficiaries of the unconditional grace, the universal mercy, and the unrestricted love of God. So what's there to fight about? 
So I'm, in other words, I'm leaving Romans 16:24 where it is in the text of the majority text. I'm leaving it right here. And it brackets Romans with grace. It embraces the whole epistle with grace. But Paul does that in all of his epistles, and that's another reason why I say it belongs right here. You say, but what about 16:25 to 27? That belongs not only at the end of Romans, but at the end of all of Paul's epistles, which is all about God having the power to strengthen you by Paul's gospel and by the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery which was kept silent for long ages in the past but is now made known. And to him, the only wise God, be the glory for the ages to come. That fits not only at the end of Romans, but at the end of all the epistles. Because grace is the seed of glory. And grace results in glory. And God receives glory for all of Paul's epistles. Look, and if you want to, in your own study, you can see 1 Corinthians 1, 3 and 16, 23. That whole epistle bracketed. By grace, unconditional grace, sola gracia. Salvation is sola gracia, solely by grace, God's grace, unconditional grace. Second Corinthians 1, 2 and 13, 13. That epistle bracketed by grace, embraced by grace, grace shot through and through. Galatians 1, 3. And 6.18, grace embraces Galatians, even where Paul has to lay the law down, as it were, the law of grace. Ephesians 1.2 and 6.24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, brackets that epistle. And then we have Colossians 1.2 and 4.18. Philippians 1, 2, and 4, 23. A little out of order there. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, and 5, 28. 2 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, 18. Even his personal letter to Philemon. Philemon bracketed by grace, 1, 2, and 1, 25. The pastoral epistles do the same thing. Look at it on your own time. Grace forms the brackets of all Paul's epistles. 1 Timothy 1.2 and 6.21. 2 Timothy 1.2 and 4.22. Titus 1.4 and 3.15. In all of Paul's epistles, grace forms the brackets. In all of Paul's epistles, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is put into words. That's what an epistle is. The grace of the Lord Jesus put into words. And that's an important principle. Those words are to be communicated to the readers and the hearers. And that includes us. There's a salutation consisting of grace at the extreme left and at the extreme right flank in Romans, as in all of Paul's epistles. Grace then encompasses the entirety of Paul's epistles 
as it encompasses all of God's plan for all of creation. The glory of God issues from the grace of God, as the final verse in Romans 16, 27 shows, to the only wise God. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, but to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory. Let not the wise person glory in his wisdom. The scientist, the philosopher, the intellectual, the political genius, the theologian. But to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory for the ages to come. Amen. What a glorious doxology to end Romans. Grace is the seed for that glory. So I asked the question in my study of myself and of God, and I'll ask it of you. Who can drop the gavel? Who can drop the gavel and make a final judgment and end the discussion as to whether Romans 16.24 is authentic or whether some student of Paul or collector of his epistles inserted it? And who's to say that even if that's the case, that they weren't inspired to do so? Or whether it is authentic, it really belongs after 1423 or 1533. Those of you that know, that study many commentaries, know what I'm talking about here. You confront these things. I'm trying to get them out of the way because they exist mostly on the extreme left and extreme right flank of Romans. Then we can get to the heart of the matter. And that's what we're doing. We're pressing to the heart of the matter, which is a difficult thing to do in any of Paul's epistles because I've learned one thing about Paul's epistles. He's always at the heart of the matter. He's always at the heart of the matter in all of his epistles. And so only God can drop that gavel. I am simply averring or asserting that Romans, like all the other epistles of Paul, are the means of conveyance of the grace of God through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Just as the kerygma, as we're going to look at again and again, the kerygma is the proclamation. The kerygma is a very key word because that's the point of confrontation of God with sinful mankind. The kerygma. K-E-R-Y-G-M-A. That's the word for proclamation in Romans 16.25. So, only God can drop the gavel about this. I am simply saying that in all of Paul's epistles, the grace of God through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, just as the kerygma, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalyptic disclosure of a divine mystery, is the point of confrontation of human beings with God in this age. God does not confront human beings by miracles today, primarily. He may, and he does, but he primarily confronts human beings today in the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. And that's one study I'm doing now on the side. I'm also studying a man named Marcus Bachmule from 1995, did a study on Revelation and the mystery in Judaism and in Pauline Christianity. And I think he's done the best study on it that's available to all, 
all students of the word, and it's magnificent. He studies words like apocalypse and mystery, and also makes a very strong case for Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27, belonging right where it is. And I like that. But there is a bracket outside of the bracket of grace, which embraces the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the glory of God for the ages to come. The Gentiles failed to give God glory. That's what Romans teaches. The Gentiles failed to give God glory through his creation. And the Jews failed to give God's glory, give God glory through the law. But in the end, all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, will ascribe and attribute glory to God through Jesus Christ who is the, our Lord and the Lord of all and the Lord of each and every human person. I'll say that again. The Gentiles failed to give God glory through his creation. It says it in Romans 1, 18 to 32. The Jews failed to give God glory through the law. And the law was hijacked by sin. So the Jew who tries to give God glory through the law gets himself all wrapped up in a Romans 7 situation. Best described by Paul Meyer in an article that he did in a book that I've read recently called The Worm at the Core of the Apple. It's the best interpretation I've ever come across as far as Romans 7 goes. The worm at the core of the apple. The sin has actually hijacked the highest good, or Torah, so that man cannot come to know God through Torah. He can only come to know God through the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what Romans is teaching. So then, I'm going to close tonight by saying, what is grace? One of my questions I've seen over and over again, quits it. Ever since I read Thomas Aquinas in his Theologica, Summa Theologia, the Latin would always come up, quits it. And there's even a word that Lonergan and others use is called quiddity, which is the whatness of a thing, the essence of a thing, quiddity. It's quits it. What is it? And over and over again through my study, especially in Florida when I had a couple of months really to study every single day for a few hours, I would write on the side of the margins of my books that I'm reading, quidsit, grace, quidsit, faith, quidsit, flesh, quidsit, sin. What is sin? What is flesh? What is death? What is faith? What is grace? These are all questions and there are answers given pr- prominently and phenomenally through Romans. And I'm going to give you an example of that. What is grace? Grace Quits it. What is it? Romans quits it. What is Romans? That's what we're doing on Sundays mainly. What is Romans? The latest theory that I'm giving to you or hypothesis that Romans, among other things, is a distillation or a fanning out of Jeremiah 9.23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth. Let not the strong person boast in his or her strength. But the one who boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows and understands me, says the Lord, who exercises or who does mercy, who does judgment, who does righteousness over all the earth, 
Because it's in these things that I delight, says the Lord. Romans, in one sense, and I think it's provable, is a fanning out of Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. So Romans distilled is saying what Yahweh said to one of his prophets in the Old Testament. That's Romans, quits it. But Romans is a lot of other things, too. Quids it, Romans. Tonight I want to ask the question, and I think we'll do this a lot, because I'm going to do it with faith. Faith is almost impossible to describe or to get into a nutshell, en nuce, as the, as the Latin people say, en nuce, or a nutshell definition of faith. So tonight we'll start with grace. And I'll show you some of the scholars I've studied, men and women, that I have been studying recently, and... They go throughout the 20th century into the 21st century, and they have some very good stuff to say. Ernst Kosman is the first one I want to quote from his 1980 Romans commentary. Famous commentary, one that I got a lot out of. Ernst Kosman, K-A-S-E-M-A-N-N, page 14, answering the question, grace, quits it. What is grace? He says, it is almost always... It almost always means the power of salvation, which finds expression in specific gifts, acts, and spheres, and which is even individualized in the charismata, or spiritual gifts. And so I want you to notice the phrase especially, grace, it almost always means the power of salvation, which finds expression in specific gifts, acts, and spheres, and which is even individualized in the charismata. Now, same book, Ernst Kosman, Romans Commentary, 1980, page 154. I have on the column, Grace, quits it. He says, Grace denotes not the disposition, but the power which takes concrete shape in the gift as its result. Both of these definitions, 140 pages apart from each other, emphasize the word power. Grace means the power of salvation. Grace denotes the power which takes concrete shape in the gift as its result. The next page, 155, same commentary, Ibid, page 155. It is the power which takes concrete form in the gift, and the gift is defined as righteousness, which is Christ's work, pure and simple. Christ's work, pure and simple. And one more time, Ernst Kosman, page 311. I read the whole book. Grace is understood as a power. All four times he emphasizes the word power. Grace is understood as a power which overcomes unbelief. Now that's powerful. Grace is a power that overcomes unbelief. So by grace are you saved through faith because grace overcomes your unbelief. See it? This is how I think. I'm sorry, but... They're coming to take me away someday. Ha 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 ha. (laughs) Anyways, grace is understood as a power which overcomes unbelief. 
Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because you have to awaken faith in me or there ain't no faith. Faith has to be your gift to me or there ain't no gift. There ain't no believing. So grace is understood as a power which overcomes unbelief and brings to faith. Listen to that one. Grace is a power that brings to faith. So by grace are you saved? Through faith, which grace brings you to, which grace awakens. Here's a, here's a shocker for you. You think you got it all figured out and better call Paul, didn't you? You thought I did. But I'm going back to Thomas Aquinas. Not his content, but his method of asking questions. Pistis Christu. Here it is. The big debate. Pistis Christu. Is it objective genitive? Does that mean Christ is the object and the faith is ours, so it's faith in Christ? Or is it subjective genitive? We made the strong argument for that that it is, and it is most of the time, if not all the time, the emphasis falls on the subjective genitive, which means pistis Christu is the faith of Christ or Jesus Christ's own fidelity and faithfulness. Is it one of these or both of these? Or is it, which one is it? Now, if I go with Thomas Aquinas' method, there's an answer that reconciles both of these. And up here, there is a thing called the plenary genitive. Did you know that? The plenary genitive, I call it the plengen, instead of the plain Jane, the plengen. Plenary genitive means both. That when we talk about the faith pistis Christu, we're talking about Jesus Christ's fidelity and the individual's participation in it. So I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God means I not only live because of his fidelity, I'm not only saved because of his faithful obedience, but I participate in his faithfulness. Otherwise, why does Paul preach the gospel to bring everyone to the obedience of faith? In Romans 1.5, all the nations to the obedience of faith. So I'm going one step further than BCP, better call Paul, in RTE, Romans the epistle. I'm calling it plenary genitive. Now, when we have another phrase called the love of God, we have agape to theou, the, the love of God. Does that mean objective genitive, our love for God? Does it mean God's love for us, subjective genitive? We got to understand this because in Romans 5, 5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. Is it our love for God or God's love for us? Romans 8.35 says nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Is it objective genitive or subjective genitive, or is it a plenary genitive in which God's gift to us is both his love for us and our love for God? And it is a plenary genitive. One of the last questions I asked Colonel Theme when he was doing conferences here, I said, there's so many passages where we have the love of God, the love of Christ. And I was thinking specifically of Ephesians 3.19. Ephesians 3.19, to come to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. I said, is it possible that all of these are plenary genitives? And he said, yes. No. He doesn't say, be careful about being bizarre. 
He just said yes. And I said, well, that started me kind of on a trend of looking at all these phrases. But is the same case with the love, the, the faith of Jesus Christ or faith in Jesus Christ, a plenary genitive. And so if that's the case, then we might have, and I didn't intend to do this, but hey, we're here. It's our anniversary. Happy Valentine's Day. Then Romans 1.17 should sound like this. In the gospel, there is revealed apocalypto. Apocalypsed is a good, well, it's now it's a verb that's used by theologians. In the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Fine to the Jew and the Greek, the Jew and the Greek. For therein, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed. We know what the righteousness of God is. It's God's saving act in Christ. We're going to see this soon. Therein is apocalypsed. The saving act of God in Christ from faith to faith. Ekpistu, ace, piste, from faith to faith. Or is that from faithfulness to faithfulness? Probably. But the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness, and I would say that means God's faithfulness revealed in Christ. For I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, which is the faithfulness of God in his Son. The righteousness of God or the saving act of God is revealed or apocalypsed from faith, which is God's faithfulness revealed in Christ to faith, which is Christ's faithfulness participated in by us. And therefore, faith is both the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and our participation in it. So salvation is actually experienced as we participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by grace. What I'm doing right now to me is grace. It's the power to do what I have to do to preach the gospel until God says time to come home. And It's grace. It's the grace of God that's with me. It's in a particular charismata. It's a gift, not of preaching, but of faith that I have. I have a gift of faith. And so I express it through preaching. A secondary gift to me is preaching. And so I labor, but it's the grace of God laboring with me. You all experience this in something you're doing in your life. And you might think it's secular, but it's God expressing his grace in power through you in love for somebody or in service in some way. And it might even be working as unto the Lord in your, what you might think is a boring menial job. So if Romans one seventeen is the gospel, the righteousness of God being apocalyptically, stunningly, shatteringly revealed from faith, God's faithfulness in Christ's obedience to faith our participation in Christ's fidelity, then we have a thesis verse for Romans, an understanding of the spiritual life 
and an interpretive clue to the whole of the book of Romans. But that's, I just thought I'd throw that out tonight. It's just, you know, throw it out there. It's Valentine's Day. And it's our anniversary. So, let's conclude with a few more quotes. Let's go back further to Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H. Karl, Swiss theologian. He wrote his in 1933, his sixth edition of Romans, which he called the Epistle to the Romans, a commentary. He says, grace, again, I have it on the column and the margin, grace quits it. He says, grace is not a human possibility for men by the side of which there is room for other possibilities, as, for example, sin. Now, he always says men because he was a, a patriarchal guy. You could say men and women. In fact, you almost have to on everything. He never says men and women. I would say men and women. Grace is not a human possibility for men and women by the side of which there's room for other possibilities, as, for example, sin. He's commenting on Paul in Romans 6.1. Shall we therefore continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never come to be. Meganoito, of course not. Why? Because I think Karl Barth is precisely right here when he says grace is not a human possibility for people, by the side of which there's room for other possibilities, as, for example, sin. In other words, God says to you and I, the possibility for you is grace. It's a divine possibility. There's no other possibility that exists for you. Well, you say, well, I can, it's possible for me to sin, and God says, not in my view it isn't. Grace is the only possibility for you. And that's the, another word for grace. Grace he goes on to say, is, I say quits it, grace. Here's a guy who says, grace is the divine possibility for men and women, I'll say, which robs them as humans of their own possibilities. Grace is the relating of the visible man to his invisible personality, which is grounded in God. Grace is related to the visible man as death to life. That's powerful. That's going to take some explanation in the future. So I'm Ricky Ricardo, and I got a lot of explaining to do, obviously. Ibid, same book, page 207. What is grace? Grace, quid sit. I'm taking you into my study, deep into the study, into the cave where I study. Grace is the power of obedience, says Karl Barth. There's that word popping up again. Grace is the power. Of obedience. Grace is the power of the resurrection. Grace is the existence begotten by God, the new man created and redeemed by God. This goes a little deeper than grace is unmerited favor. A little deeper. Page 221, same Karl Barth. His commentary on Romans. I have read the whole thing. Grace is the dissolution of the sin which dwells in your mortal body. Grace is God's authority over men and women, over men and women who are one and indivisible. Then finally, and this is a longer quote, page 225 of the same book, the Epistle to Romans. 
Karl Barth, 1933. Grace is the crisis, and he always spells crisis, K-R-I-S-I-S, and he always spells it in all caps. Grace is the crisis from death to life. Death is therefore at once the absolute demand and the absolute power of obedience over against sin. No tension or polarity is possible between grace and sin. There can be no adjustment or equilibrium or even temporary compromise between them. As men and women under grace, we cannot admit or allow grace and sin to be two alternative possibilities or necessities, each with its own rights and properties. For this reason, the gospel of Christ is a shattering disturbance, an assault which brings everything into question. For this reason, nothing is so meaningless, and I love this, I really love this, Nothing is so meaningless as the attempt to construct a religion out of the gospel and to see it as one human possibility in the midst of others. That's why I always thought Christianity, you can't put that in a comparative religion class because it doesn't compare. It's incomparable. It's not even a religion. It's something far, far greater. Now, Let's go up to our time in the 21st century. David W. Congdon, C-O-N-G-D-O-N. Page 50 in his book, which I had the privilege of reading from cover to cover in Florida the last time. God's be- I wasn't just being the executor of my father's will and my mother's will. That was a lot of it, but there was a lot of studying going on down there too. Congdon, page 50 of his book, The God Who Saves, said this. God's being is the act of salvation. God's being is the act of salvation. So what got, got me thinking, you say, well, that, what's, that's not grace quits it. Wait a minute. Hold on. Under this rubric, by grace you are saved means you are saved by God's very being. We are saved by the saving God, and therefore we are brought into existence by the God who calls things with no existence into existence. And we are dead ones made alive by the God who raises the dead and who has raised Jesus from the dead. So my, tr- my assumption or my conclusion is, grace quits it, is this. Grace is God's very being inasmuch as God's being is the act of salvation. So you are saved by the saving act which God is. He is that saving act. He can't be other than that. If God is that saving act, then he must save all that he's ever brought into existence that didn't exist before. And he must make alive all that is dead, for in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive, because to God all are living to him. As Jesus said to the Sadducees, so you have been saved by the God who is the universally saving act through Jesus Christ. Because 
as the problem that resulted in universal death came through a man, says Romans 15, 19. So, the solution to the problem of universal death was encountered and solved in a man, the man Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through a faithfulness which did not originate with yourselves. For it is the faithfulness of God, and I like the little twist on that, not of works, lest any person should boast. Guess what Ephesians 2.9 is doing? Alluding to Jeremiah 9.23. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Because God is the power of salvation. So then, in closing, by grace you have been saved through a faithfulness which did not originate with yourselves. For it is the faithfulness of the God who fulfills his covenant with all flesh. He makes a covenant with all flesh. Not a contract. I'll say that again. These are things that we're going to have to fan out. So that's one of my favorite terms now, fanning out, because it's a strategy. It is the faithfulness of the God who fulfills his covenant with all flesh, and it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who, listen carefully, fulfilled the human and creational side of that covenant by becoming flesh and executing the perfect obedience of faithfulness. This faith through which we are saved is the faithfulness of God in Christ, in which we participate when the Spirit of Christ awakens us to and gifts us with faith. Quits it faith, you say. That's another night. Congdon again then, page 84, note 81. Paul's understanding of grace is something that happens to us. We started with it. That's why I like the word saints. Sanctification, something that happens to us. Because God has made him to be, for us, sanctification. So again, Congdon says, Paul's understanding of grace is something that happens to us. As an event whereby God acts upon us. And I would have to ask, add to that, whereupon God acts upon us savingly. Finally, Beverly Gaventa. I told you men and women, Beverly Gaventa. Beverly Roberts Gaventa. Wonderful theologian of our own time. On the verge of writing her own Romans commentary. She'll probably come out with it the day I'm done, and it'll probably be much better than when I've taught. So that's okay. I love it. Beverly Roberts Gaventa, G-A-V-E-N-T-A, for those of you who want to Google or whatever, YouTuber or whatever you do. She wrote the book called When in Romans. I read that in Florida last time. Page, 40, page 88. I got in the column, or in my mind at least, quits it, Grace. She says, Grace, a power more triumphant than sin. Simple. She uses the word power for grace. And on page 110, when in Romans, 
recommend the book. Very simple and easy to read, but powerful. Page 110, she says, Grace, ruling as king, referencing Romans 5.21, is a rule that triumphed over the twin powers of sin and death. We're going to find out in Romans that sin is also a power, that death is also a power. These are the powers that the gospel brings to naught. Because grace is a superior power, as we will see. All of these quotations illustrate a principle to me. That theology, specifically the theological functional specialty of interpretation, is always a collaborative enterprise. If you're in a church or an assembly or an affiliation where you're forbidden to read other theologians, careful, that's kind of cultic. Because the theological advancements of our time are only as a result of collaboration with others. And that's what Lonergan taught me long ago in method when I started to break out myself, break out, break out flex my muscles, smash the boards that formed a coffin around me. He said, the method of theology is collaboration. So I'm not afraid to receive what others have received from the Lord. So all of this means that it's a collaboration. But we have to take our stand. Having read so much good stuff from people, you take it in, you appropriate what's good, and as 1 Thessalonians says, you kind of regurgitate the evil, keep the good. But then you take your stand on your own stand. My own stand in Romans is that it's interpreted in a pincer movement from the left flank and the right flank. We're going to soon be going into Romans 15 and then Romans 15 correlating with Romans 2 and 3. Then 14 in Romans correlating with Romans 3 and 4. And then we're going to see how these flanks from 12 to 16 and 1 to 4 push toward a center. And a radical center, which seems to be right around Romans 8, 31, 32, right around there. And that paragraph 31 to 39 seems to be kind of like the radical X-ring center, which seems to give such a note of security and assurance to all believers that it ends the need for believers to compete for superior honor and to measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, which is never, ever wise. So that's where we are now. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity once again to press from the extreme right flank and the extreme left flank toward a center in which our Lord Jesus Christ will be truly glorified in our midst. And may I say, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us tonight in ways that we can't imagine. Grace is a power. Grace is a reign. Grace is a rule. Grace is a superior power in our lives, superior to unbelief, superior to sin, superior to insecurity, to anxiety. May that grace power be ruling over us, reign over me the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father. Speaking of grace, 